0: All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson, the gospel of our Lord according to St. Luke. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners, eats with them. So he told them this parable, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, He lays it on his shoulders and rejoices, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and rejoices, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheet that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The grass withers, the flower fades But the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Puberty brings with it many gifts, of course some of them are great, the first signal that maturity is hopefully outpacing childishness. You know, your humor gets a bit more nuanced and sophisticated, right? I mean, sure, bathroom, bathroom jokes and dirty words are still hysterically funny, but some of the things that you laugh at now are things that have a chance of making your parents laugh too, which is pretty great for everyone else to watch as it unfolds. You're also capable of more complex thinking, right? I mean, they start making you take things like algebra and biology and geometry and chemistry and physics and calculus. You start reading books that have a bit more ambiguity and subtlety, a bit more heft than Frog and Toad or the Berenstain Bears. And you're responsible enough that the adults begin to worry less and less that when they leave the house you'll find some way to burn it down or drink the Drano under the kitchen sink. And obviously there's the whole sexual awakening thing that shows up uninvited, but not mostly un- not unappreciated. But yeah, that's kind of a mixed bag for most people too. Beginning the journey down the long road of adolescence comes with a certain promise attached, and that is, you keep your nose clean and your head on straight. Don't play in traffic. Eat ice cream for breakfast, or forget to lift the toilet seat. And in a few years, you get to graduate to adulthood. But uh, there are a few downsides to the magic maturity clock striking puberty. I mean, there are zits, of course. A lot of sweat and bad breath and funky stuff, all of which can range from mildly off-putting to unbearably gross, just, to, just plain confusing. Now, the hormone thing, as I said, uh, is kind of a mixed bag. Their emergence in the throne room of an adolescent's life comes with a great deal of euphoria and promise, but it also comes with its own share of, sort of unrequited yearnings and frustrations. They tell you that the new freedoms you now enjoy come also with a proportional increase in responsibility. Yes, you can stay up later, but often that freedom gets annexed to such drudgeries as homework and chores. Neither of which seemed like a huge part of your life only a few short years before. But there's another gift that comes with one's burgeoning maturity, And this gift is one that goes to the, the adults in a young person's life. Now, I, I call it a gift, but most adults don't necessarily see it that way. If you ask them on the sly, most adults would tell you that they just assumed this present wasn't on the inexorable puberty gift registry. I mean, it's just so dang inconvenient what am I talking about? Well, for lack of a more elegant term, I, I just call it the, 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 the BS detector, right? Or maybe the early alternative fact threat detection system. I'm trademarking that one. Dr. Spock or whoever's the child-rearing expert de can you know, they can run with that. But the truth of it is, young people going through puberty can smell pretense and twaddle at 100 paces. Whew, boy, and they are really good at it. They're, what they're really good at, what they're fully trained ninjas at, what, what, what adults hate to be the target of is their ability to zero in on hypocrisy like a heat-seeking missile, and they're good at it. I I know, believe me, I know. So, but here's a pro tip. You want to know one of the ways they sharpen this hypocrisy-hunting sixth sense? It goes like this. This part is free, no extra charge. Hey, Dad, what what kind of stuff did you learn when you were my age? Wearily, most adults start with the good wholesome stuff, right? Well, I, you know, I used to play little league baseball, or I had a paper route I delivered every morning before school, or class present, or I had grand aspirations of launching a whole new sub-genre of rock and roll, so I really poured myself into my tuba lessons. And they say, well, oh, that's cool. But did you ever get into any trouble? Now, we adults have vague memories of our own puberty and realize that this is heading into dangerous territory. We start to get that sinking feeling in the pit of our stomach, and then we mumble something like, Oh yeah, once in a while. But see, now we're caught in the trap. It's at this point that most adults are faced with a dilemma. We want to tell them the truth. I mean, always tell the truth, right? But we don't want to start giving them ideas. So we try to sort of brush it off. Oh, you know, just little stuff like not cleaning my room or uh, forgetting to turn in all my homework. And they say, "Um, that's it? That's all? Well, I mean, there was this one time when we blew up the chemistry lab trying to make gunpowder with potassium sulfate. That was pretty cool. I mean, we got in a lot of trouble for it, but, uh, oh, and there, yeah, there was that one time we t- tried to lift the principal's car up and put it crossways between two other cars so that she couldn't get out. But somebody lost their grip, and the whole car just sort of rolled over on its side. and. and That was kind of a problem. You see, in trying to wrestle some kind of mandatory teachable moment out of this rapidly deteriorating conversation, you say, So, you know, don't do that kind of stuff. It's bad. You don't want that kind of thing going on your permanent record. But then you get to the heart of the matter and they say, well, did you ever, you know, did you ever get drunk or did you ever do drugs or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And and you say, and knowing that you've already embarked on the conversation that you have uh, to this point successfully avoided until now, you mumble something about, well, you know, that's, um, that's probably a conversation for when you get older. And you wipe your brow, proud that you've definitely gotten out of that train wreck. But they know, don't they? I mean, they know. And now they've got an even more finely calibrated instrument to deploy in their endless uh, quest to root out hypocrisy. Because sooner or later, they're going to get into the same kind of trouble that you got into when you were their age, and they're going to remind you that, hey, pop, I seem to remember that uh, you got into trouble when you were my age for way worse stuff than I did. And all the arguments that you throw at them about, you know, how all you're trying to do is save them the kind of trouble that you went through when you were their age or it's going to sail in one ear and out the other without ever making a dent on the squishy stuff in the middle. And somebody who knows you both your own parents, their grandparents, they're good for this, is gonna laugh and talk about how rich this is and about apples not falling far from the tree and remember how much grief you caused when you stole the school Zamboni and tried to make an ice skating rink in the school parking lot. Then you just tell them to mind their own business. And then we realize that all the lessons we so lovingly shared with them about character and being a productive citizen get lost in the harsh light of our own adolescent knuckleheadedness, right? And it dawns on us again that what winds up shaping them more is our actions than our well rehearsed lectures on morality. Is that right? I remember being in an education course in grad school where the professor laid down a particularly pithy little chestnut that I still think about regularly. He said, morals are caught, not taught. Morals are caught, not taught. Of course, I, I, I should know this deep down in my bones. As I've said before, my academic training in ethics is, is an Aristotelian, and Aristotle was famous for claiming that character development is more a function of observation than instruction, of of imitation than of well-intended lectures. In this way, the young person or the student is imprinted with the image of their parent or their teacher, right on their very being. A little piece of the parent gets passed, or or the teacher or the mentor gets passed down, and the person carries it around with them. In other words, part of who you are as a parent or a teacher or a mentor is engraved on the heart and mind of another. Those around you, especially those you're responsible for helping to teach and guide, in, inevitably carry a part of you with them, whether they or you know it or not. Now, as we spoke a couple of weeks ago uh, about this, in the ancient Near Eastern honor-shame-based culture of Jesus Judea, everybody could tell you where you fit in the food chain by the people that you choose to hang out with. And in our text for today, we find the scribes and the Pharisees, the folks that Jesus has been going back and forth with about their own hypocrisy for a couple chapters now, are still bellyaching about Jesus' choice of dinner companions you know, tax collectors and sinners. In response to the grousing by the folks at the top of the local food chain, Jesus tells two parables, one about a lost sheep and the other about a lost coin. He says, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? Or, or what woman having silver, 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? I mean, why can't Jesus just leave well enough alone? It's not, quit yanking the chains of the movers and the shakers, right? I mean, this could go on his permanent record. So, but then Jesus makes a, the, the, the money play. He says, I'll tell you what, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. <laughs> Get it? Jesus just posterized the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, essentially, you don't like these tax collectors and sinners, but God wants them. And when they repent, then heaven throws a party. Fine, all right, but let me ask you something. What does Jesus mean by repentance here? Now, the standard kind of answer, as as we've discussed before, is something uh, like, you know, feeling sorry about doing the wrong thing and then promising to do the right thing. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's a traditional understanding of repentance. You do something wrong you feel bad, and then you promise not to do it again. That's how that goes. But, but, but here's what I want to know. Uh, in these two parables, where does the repentance actually come in? Do you know what I mean? Jesus is telling a story about a sheep and a coin. Now, if they're supposed to represent lost sinners, how can either a sheep or a coin muster up the sincere contrition and will to reform that a traditional definition of repentance requires? You see what I'm saying? Sheep and coins can't repent in the way that we've tended to think is necessary for there to be repentance. So apparently, Luke means something different by repentance than we're used to thinking about it. The word that Luke uses here for repentance means a a changing of one's mind, a turning around, a literal reorientation to reality. In effect, at least in the way that Luke has Jesus use it, repentance means something like a restoration to the community in the case of the sheep and a restoration to wholeness in the case of the coin. In this case, the sheep and the coin don't find the moral regret for getting lost and then repent of their errant ways because, I mean, how could they do that, right? In fact, instead of focusing on the sheep or the coin, Luke wants to draw attention to the one who searches so tirelessly for a sheep and a coin that would have been much easier to write off on their taxes. In economics... The law of diminishing returns suggests that there comes a point in some business situations where the benefits gained are less than the amount of money or energy invested. Colloquially, we, we, we talk about it as throwing good money after bad. I mean, but think about it. How are you going to leave 99 perfectly good sheep alone in the wilderness to go searching for one ridiculous direction-challenged sheep Why would you spend more time looking for a coin than it cost for you to earn it in the first place? So in the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, Jesus makes the point that the search could potentially cost more than what was lost. But both the shepherd and the woman searched anyway. Though it, to all outward appearances, was a waste of time and energy, they searched anyway. but why? Well, Jesus tells us these parables that God is adamant about finding the folks that everybody else thinks are a waste of time, because God loves not even those people whom everybody else thinks are disposable, but especially those people everyone else thinks are disposable. You see, these parables ultimately ask us, Which forgotten and despised people are we loving so much that it makes the scribes and the Pharisees around us nervous? What folks do we invite to sit around this table to eat with us? Folks who, if word got out, we were sharing the Lord's Supper with, would cause Al Mohler to write another blog about us. Now, typically, we focus on this parable as a sort of Gala that heaven throws when God finds one of these sinners. Because finding what's lost is a big enough deal on its own to be worthy of celebration. I think we can all agree. But maybe there's more at stake here, which helps explain God thumbing God's nose at the law of diminishing returns to hunt down people that most, other, most others don't believe are worthy of that effort. I'd like to suggest to you that what really motivates God to take on this ill-advised search for the people that every conceivable calculation says are more trouble than they're worth is that what's lost, more than just a sinner, is someone God has imprinted with God's own image. Engraved on the hearts and minds of Of all of us is the image of God. And as long as they stay lost, then a part of God stays with them. And God's not having that. See, that's the real reason that heaven rejoices when one who is lost is finally found, because God refuses to let us go because we carry a part of God's self with us. All of us, even the people who seem only too willing to let the tax collectors and sinners waste away undiscovered. So the question to us is who are we in danger of ignoring? Or or worse, Who are we in danger of excluding because they don't feel like they're worth the effort? Or put more positively, because they bear part of God's heart with them, who do we care so much about that we're willing to risk the wrath of the folks in charge just to welcome them, to have a meal with them, to call them our family? We need to be acutely aware of the implications of this question in a world in which some of our fellow travelers have to point out to the rest of us that given the suffering they've historically endured and endure to this day, that their lives matter too. Now it may make other people cringe, but the radical welcome Jesus asks us to embrace means seeking out and loving the folks who not only get regularly left behind, but whose very presence makes the religious types really nervous. Why? Because they bear the image of God. And God wants every single one of them. And given our own need to be found by God, we all all people should know how that feels. We should always worry more about leaving somebody out than letting somebody in. And we don't want to be hypocrites after all. Amen.